Chapter Three of Yankee at Molokai by Eva K. Betts. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Maria Therese. Chapter Three. Ira does some hard jobs. They left Chicago by train, heading for the war they had enlisted to fight. But at Quincy, Illinois, out they got. It was necessary to walk to a train awaiting them on the other side of the river. The ice looks unsafe to me said Ira's commanding officer. "'It is quite thin,' agreed Ira. "'It's a pity the heavy freeze didn't last a little longer.' "'Hardly looks thick enough to hold a man, let alone an army.' "'I'll try it, sir.' Before the officer could protest, if he thought of doing so, Ira moved quickly and lightly out on the ice, stamped on it once or twice, and then came back. "'It will hold, I think, sir, but the men can't march over it. What do you mean? The men should cross one by one, leaving some distance between, and they should take care that there is no cadence to their steps. They should quite deliberately stay out of beat. Think that would work, do you? Ira nodded. I think it will be safe enough that way. The men started to cross the river, one at a time, and keeping at a distance of about ten feet from each other. If it hadn't been so serious, it would have been amusing to see how they had to struggle to discard the rhythmic stride, which for the past several months they had fought to learn. The baggage, which was Ira's concern, offered more of a problem. Ice that would hold a man would not support four times that man's weight in goods. Yet an army without food and supplies was hardly a fighting force. Ira walked along the bank, and a little distance downstream he came to an area of open water. That was the place now to get the means. Hunting around produced a few small boats, laid up by their owners, while traffic on the river was ice-bound. With hands that felt almost useless in the cold, the men hauled the baggage to the boats, loaded it on, and began the ferrying operation. Few of the men knew anything about boats, and some of them, anxious to get to the comparative heat of the train as quickly as possible, overloaded the small craft, or loaded them improperly. One tottering heap swayed perilously, tilted far to one side, and then righted it itself. The laws of gravity must have been suspended for the afternoon, gasped Ira. At last the material was all across, lugged to the train, loaded on, and the engine chuffed them off to Fort Leavenworth. Busy though Ira had been before, the last part of January and the early part of February were times of pressure such as he had never known. The regiment had to be outfitted for a 130-mile journey to Fort Scott. Uniforms, blankets, tents, food, cooking utensils, the thousand and one things needed by an army on the march had to be provided and packed with an eye to both accessibility and protection from the weather. February 5th and 6th were days of snow and sleet, the most miserable of all ground coverings. On the 7th, at dawn, the men started out on their long trek, each wagon loaded with blankets and tents was drawn by six strong mules, which were willing enough, but which found the icy, rutted roads treacherous and difficult. When they got to the Kansas River, it offered a bad problem, because there was no shore. The river ran between high banks, which seemed like cliffs to the weary drivers. The wagons are too heavy. The mules couldn't possibly hold them back on that grade, said one of the mule skinners. Ira nodded thoughtfully. We'll have to figure out some system of brakes. The foot brake would simply burn the rim off the wheel, and the wagon would overrun the mules. He considered the matter for a few moments. 
Get the mud chains, he said. When, on roads that sometimes seemed made of bottomless mud, the heavy wagons got so bogged down that the mules couldn't move them. Heavy chains were attached to the axles, and manpower was added to mule power to get underway again. When that happened, indignation seemed to be equally divided between men and mules. The animals didn't like all the clanking and commotion around them, and by the time chains were resorted to, they had usually decided they didn't feel like working anyway. The men, on the other hand, felt that they had not enlisted in the army to do mules' work, and the gooey, soup-like mud improved neither their uniforms nor their dispositions. So when Ira ordered the mud chains out, there was a groan from the men. The waggling of the mules' ears as they heard the clanking chains might well have been semaphore messages of protest. "'Put them on the back axle of that first wagon,' ordered Ira, "'and you men hang back on the chains as the wagon goes down the bluff.' The mules on the first wagon were started down the steep hill, a trip for which they had little enthusiasm. One of them stopped and turned his head, eyeing the wagon with a comical expression of doubt. But he moved on with the other five, and one could imagine that he felt relieved when the heavy wagon did not bump him from the rear. One by one the wagons were eased down the bank, some teetering dangerously, but none turning over. "'You've been at this job all your life, I suppose,' commented one of the men, as he and Ira started the wagon train moving again on the other side of the river. "'No, it's a new job for me.' The other man studied him thoughtfully. "'You don't look long out of your teens,' he said. But you sure gathered a lot of know-how someplace along the line. Well, thanks, Ira grinned. And, just for the record, I still have a bit to go before I'm out of my teens. You'll sure make a man, said the other, and went off to his wagon. It took two weeks to get to Fort Scott. They were there three or four days when they were told to go to New Mexico, a trip which would include a hundred and fifty miles of marching. There was a good deal of grumbling, but off they went, only to be told on their arrival that they were wanted back at their starting point. Say, does anybody in this army know what he's doing? I do. I'm marching, 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 day and night. I mean anybody at the top. Orders, orders countermanded, orders, orders changed, orders, orders reversed. No wonder the Union is losing the war. Yeah, the Confederates use their men for fighting. We're winning the war for them. We're walking ourselves to death. But at last, by the end of May, they were in Tennessee, and at least on the fringes of the conflict. In the area in which they were, the Confederate fighting consisted mostly of guerrilla action. Not so dramatic, perhaps, as full-scale engagements, but certainly necessary to be kept in check. Much of this guerrilla action was by raiding parties sent out by the wily General Forrest, who had gone into Tennessee with 4,000 men, and who succeeded in making things very lively for everyone around him. It became a personal challenge for Ira to outwit the general, and at times it seemed almost like a game. Indeed, many aspects of life at Fort Donelson had an unreal quality. The garrison knew that the Tennessee campaign, which had opened up the Tennessee and Cumberland rivers to the Union, had been planned by a civilian, and what was even more distressing to some of them the civilian was a woman. The matter was always sure of discussion, when time was free and there were no card games going. Don't tell me a woman planned it. What does a woman know about war? They know about plans, don't they? Plans for a new dress, or maybe a new pudding. 
But war? But my brother saw it in a paper in Washington. A newspaper? What was the name of it? What did it say? It was an article that Secretary Stanton wrote. I don't know if it was in a newspaper or not, but he saw it. It said that a young lady named Anna Ella Carroll had gone out to St. Louis and studied the map or something and worked the whole thing out. There was silence for a while. Then the doubter spoke again. How did she come to do that? Did somebody send her? President Abraham Lincoln sent her, that's who. She wrote some books or something, and he must have read them, or maybe somebody told him about them. Anyway, he knew she was smart, so he told her to do it. She must be smart. What did you say her name was? Anna Ella Carroll, from Maryland. Carroll, from Maryland? There was a Charles Carroll from Maryland who signed the Declaration of Independence. He was her grandfather, I think, said Miss Carroll's spokesman. Planned by a woman or not, the capture of Fort Donelson had been bitter and costly. There were still holes in the ground where Union soldiers had fallen on muddy earth, lain there until they froze in, and after the fighting was over, had to be dug out for burial. Knowledge of the price and pain and blood which had been paid for the fort made the men more than ever determined to hold it. Outposts were stationed all around it, and getting supplies out to those men in the field and into the men of the garrison kept Ira busy. Then, too, the government in Washington seemed not to have expected casualties, or at least had made small preparation for them. Volunteer hospital steamers plied the river, bringing sheets and pillowcases and bandages given by patriotic women from their own household supplies. It was Ira's duty to get them from the boats and deliver them to hospitals needing them. The center of Ira's activity was in the town of Decatur, Alabama. Their supplies were unloaded. Their wagons and gun carriages were repaired. Horses were gathered together to be sent out as remounts. Under Ira's direction, sawmills were built and often operated around the clock, cutting lumber for new construction, sawing logs for use in laying corduroy roads, or making boats for pontoon bridges. From there, Ira made frequent trips to Nashville, where one of his duties was to pick up the money for his civilian payroll. A good many men had not volunteered for the army, but were willing to work for the government as civilians. Some of them felt that because of home responsibilities they could not go into the army. Some just didn't care to. But whatever their reasons for not being in uniform, they were now government employees, paid from the quartermaster's office. On one of his trips back from Nashville, Ira was carrying $22,000, civilian pay for a period of weeks. When his train stopped at a water tank, a scout brought them word that Forrest and his raiders were in the area. Ira knew that he wouldn't be able to stand the Confederates off in a fight, and he knew that they could make good use of the money he was carrying. So, since combat was unwise, he tried to figure out evasive action. Should he secretly leave the train, and the hope that Forrest would head for that while Ira was slipping through the woods on horseback? Should he have the men fire the engines to get up all possible steam and make a run for it? Should he send men off through the woods as decoys while he, Ira, stayed on a train proceeding at a speed no greater than usual? He turned the matter over in his mind, viewing it from all angles. The decision was his alone. He decided that the train would run for it. They had coal enough for an ordinary run, but firing up for this race would use considerably more. The men fired grimly their coal-dust and sweat-masked faces desperate. We're not going to have enough fuel to keep this up much longer, 
yelled one of the men. Ira disappeared, but was back soon, carrying broken seats from the car behind. Use these to stretch the coal, he said. When all the seats are gone, we'll rip up the floors. The fires blazed, and the old engine seemed ready to burst at the seams. I hope they're behind us and not ahead, muttered Ira. If they throw blocks on the tracks, and we hit them at this speed. There was an outburst of shots behind them. Whether it was forest men shooting at them, or whether the shots came from Union scouts who had discovered the Confederate forces, they did not know, and they certainly did not stop to find out. They were on a long downgrade now. The firemen could take it a little easy, but momentum kept the train going. But when they reached a level space, the firing began again. Then, it seemed quite suddenly, they were within their own lines. Then they were at Decatur. Although there was the usual noise of a city where men are working, it seemed very still once Ira was away from the rattle and clank and hiss and bang of the train with its straining boilers. He jumped to the ground, swept his hat off his head, and made a mock bow to the engine. Thank you, you're a grand old lady, he said. Then he sauntered off to the paymaster's office. So many duties fell to the young man not yet twenty. As more and more lumber was needed, he had to take his gangs farther and farther into the woods. They would fell trees and set up a mill. The trees were cut into lengths and laid on the ground as roads, where once they had stood tall and leafy. Each day, it seemed, offered new and strange tasks. As a young boy, he had learned printing, bookbinding, selling. Now he was doing engineering, building, carpentering, buying. And he approached each new problem in the same way he had since boyhood. He studied it, figured the solution, got to work, and carried through to completion. He planned and constructed a system of blockhouses and earthworks along a hundred and fifty miles of riverfront and two hundred and forty miles of railroad. Having completed them, it was his duty to see that the men who manned them were kept supplied. Not too easy a task with General Roddy's men just south of them, and the daring General Forrest likely to pop up from the most unexpected quarters. Forrest did once succeed in capturing a trainload of supplies, and was probably very glad to have warm uniforms for his men, even though they were Union blue instead of Confederate gray. After this exploit, Forrest was even more carefully watched. In their concentration on Forrest, the Union forces didn't notice that General Hood was working his men into a position to make trouble. By retiring south and west from Atlanta, Hood had saved his army to fight another day. It was now his plan, having consolidated his forces, to march north and east through Tennessee, take Fort Donelson, and go on to Georgia. He hoped to force General Sherman out of there and take the state for the Confederacy. The forces of General Thomas had been detached from Sherman's army and sent to defend Nashville. Supplies for him were being gathered at Chattanooga, toward which Hood was heading. Ira dashed up there with all possible speed. All transports will take through the river, he ordered. All eight? Yes, we don't want any of them to fall into enemy hands if Chattanooga is taken. The men set to work. Luckily there isn't as much here as we had before we outfitted General Sewell's man. But load all there is and destroy anything that can't be loaded. Get all trains filled and out, too. With the skill of an experienced general, Ira marshaled his men, using each to the greatest advantage. He was everywhere at once, 
directing, supervising, pitching in, and using his own brawn, when that seemed needed. The ships went out. Twenty trains rolled away. Five hundred wagons drove off to safety. Then, under the command of Colonel Prosser, the men were strung out along a skirmish line. "'Do you think that Hood will be fold, sir?' asked Ira. "'He's a pretty sly bird, and may guess that the lines aren't backed up.' "'He may, but I hope not,' answered Prosser. "'It's all we can do, and if we can even make him hesitate, it will give our army that much more time to move up.' For some unexplained reason, Hood, who was usually so reckless, did hesitate. The thin line of men seemed to him to indicate a possible trap, with a large force concealed, behind them, and instead of attacking with his advance force, he waited for his whole command to arrive. In the meantime, Ira had coordinated supplies. More Union soldiers had moved in. Chattanooga and Decatur were saved. Ira received high commendation for his part in the affair. 1864 ended. 1865 passed in blood and destruction. The Civil War ended, and in December Ira was mustered out. The war had changed him. His late teens and early twenties had been spent in the army. He was still very deeply devoted to his mother, but he didn't go home to Wisconsin. Nine days after he left the army in Mount Vernon, Ohio, he was married. In January of 1867, he went to Memphis looking for work. The year was a distressful one, and by the end of it his wife had left him. She had been recklessly extravagant, uninterested in her home, and Ira had to borrow a good deal of money while they were together. When she went, she left masses of unpaid bills, so he was plunged further into a debt which took him years to pay. But pay it all he did, and with interest. Ira Dutton Ira, who had been walking dejectedly along the Memphis street, pulled up short and looked to see who called. Colonel Wills! Ira was delighted to recognize an old army friend. Ira, you're the very man I was looking for. I hope you are not too well settled in a good job. Settled in a job? Ira smiled bitterly. No, indeed. All the heroes are home now, and there are very few jobs available. I found none yet. What good luck for me, said Colonel Wills. I have been assigned to a very big and very delicate task, and I can think of no one I'd rather have helping me than you. Ira waited. Remember how, at Decatur, when a job seemed extra difficult, it would always turn up on your desk? Ira smiled. If it's tough, let Dutton do it, was our motto, Colonel Wills went on. I sometimes suspected that, Ira replied. He was easier and more relaxed than he had been in some time, talking with this friend who had known him in the days before his unhappy marriage, the days when success had rewarded his efforts. Well, this job is tough. It will need all your business sense, your engineering ability, and your tact. I am buying land, planning government cemeteries, finding bodies at the battlefields, and transferring them to the new cemeteries, and I'd like to have you as an assistant. Very soon afterward, Ira went to work for Colonel Wills. The job, as had been foretold, called out all his many abilities. That was pleasant but the most satisfactory part of the work for him lay in the opportunities it gave him for bringing some little comfort to those who mourned fathers, sons, husbands, and brothers. When the bodies were prepared for moving to their new resting places, Ira often found in the old graves little keepsakes, pictures, treasured lockets, diaries, which he sent to the men's families. 
those lonely ones at home got consolation from the souvenirs. That job ended, and Ira got another, then another. He was successful in gathering enough to pay off, bit by bit, the debts which were the only mementos of his unhappy marriage. He was handsome, gay, and popular, with quite a bit of the daredevil in his makeup, and no party was considered a success without him. Publicly he was all that was desirable in an attractive young man. Secretly he was drinking heavily. He learned that he had a balance of six hundred dollars, coming for services to the government, but refused to apply for it. He loved his country dearly, was proud to serve her, and felt that she owed him nothing. But in spite of these high ideals, he kept on drinking even more heavily. Restless, uneasy, he seemed to be looking for something, but he had no idea what it was that he sought. End of chapter 3